That's, that song that you just sang was written out of really, really great pain. The individual who wrote that um, was a very wealthy Chicago businessman. Back in the early 1900s, he and his wife and his three daughters had purchased a passage on a freighter, a, a, a cruise liner, to go to Europe. And they were to uh, meet up in New York, and then they were going to set sail and go across to Europe. And because this businessman had so much business going on in Chicago, he sent a telegram ahead to his wife in New York and said, "Um, please go on ahead of me and I will meet you in Europe And uh, as soon as my business is done here. And she set sail with the daughters. The ship never arrived. And the ship went down. He was waiting for a telegram to come back from Europe confirming their arrival and their location. The only telegram he got back was from someone who represented the cruise line that said, none saved, all lost. And he started writing that song, It Is Well With My Soul. How do you do that? You can't do that in human nature. That only comes from a relationship with Christ because most people that we know in the world would say, God, what have you done to me? my wife and daughters in one episode, but he was able to sit down and we're singing a hundred years later what he wrote. That's why he said, Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. He wanted to be back with his wife and his daughters again. That's, that's what you hear coming out of that. Well, we're going to take a minute and pray and focus our thoughts because we're going to jump into the book of Ephesians again where we left off at last week. But before you uh, do that, would you pray with me? Let's focus God, we ask that you would, in a supernatural way, through only what your Holy Spirit can do, bring our attention to your word. And we ask that you would speak specifically through it. God, I believe that even though we're gathered here together as a group and your spirit broods over this congregation, you will speak to us individually. You have something to say to each and every one of us. So God, I ask that you would make that real now. In Jesus' name. Amen. So January, known as the month of lying. Did you know that? The month of lying. And and you can validate that every time you go to the supermarket and you see all those magazines on the rack that says, a new you in 15 days. Okay, You can lose 30 pounds in 10 days. It's not true. But the magazine industry knows that people, especially in January, want to hear that they can have a new identity, a new image. And we form these resolutions. Well, the publishers have jumped on that. And so they sell lots and lots of magazines. How to transform yourself and make yourself into a new you. But those magazines fail. We read them and we can't necessarily transform ourselves as easily as they said. I have a question for you this morning. You're going to see the question on the screen and I want you just to ponder it. Fill in the blank <coughs> mentally. Who do you believe yourself to be this morning? What is your image of yourself? Answer this. I am married, single, divorced, successful, failure, rich, poor. Did you have a nickname in high school? Was it a good one? Was it one you didn't like? Was it one you couldn't wait to shed? How about your parents? Did they give you a positive self-image? 
Or do you have a negative self-image? See, the circumstances and the relationships that we have around us help form our identity, who we see ourselves as. Earlier this week, I had a, a reality check about my identity. Um, it was uh, Wednesday coming up here to the church, and some of you know that I live south of here a little bit in, in Williamston School District, and I'm in Wheatfield Township, which is about 13, 14 miles south of here. So I'm out in the country area, and I have to take Meridian Road to get up to this direction. So I'm, I'm pull out onto Meridian Road, and it's a country area. I'm not yet to 96, and I'm just cruising along, and I'm promise you, I'm not thinking of how fast I'm driving at that point, just thinking of all the things I've got to do. And I didn't look at my speedometer until I went up over the crest of the hill and there was another blue vehicle coming over the crest of the hill. Uh, There's there's a lot of uh, state troopers and police officers that attend here at the church. Um, Unfortunately, it wasn't one of those. Um, And I I saw him do a 180 in my mirror, and I looked immediately at my speedometer, and it said 68, and I was in a 55, and I knew I was cooked. And so did what I was supposed to do, pulled off to the side of the road, put my emergency blinkers on, and got my driver's license out and held it out the window, and he pulls up behind me in his company car, and the little red light's going on, and I, I thought the first question was going to be, do you know why I pulled you over? But the first question was, um is this car registered to you? Are you the owner? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, do you know why I pulled you over? And I said, yeah, I'm thinking I was doing 68. And he said, 69. (laughs) I'm thinking his radar gun needs to be checked, but that's okay. (laughs) I understand they're pretty accurate, though. And uh, he said, do you have your registration, too? And I handed him that. And he took my license, and he looked at it. And he looked in the window, and he looked at it. You're the guy who leads that church in New Hope and Hazlitt, right? <laughs> I wanted a new identity at that point. <laughs> the, the sense of being convict was hanging over me, and I'm sliding down in my seat. Answer this question for me. Who does God say that you are? You don't have to speculate about that. He says right in His Word, who we are. Look with me on the screen at Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, made in the image of the living God of the universe with the imprint of your creator on you. As a matter of fact, he goes one step further and he says in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he has also set eternity in our heart. It wasn't just enough to make us in His image. He gave us a longing and a destiny for this place of eternity to be with Him. But something changed. With the fall of man came a disfiguring and our image changed. Who we are in God was mutilated and the self-portrait was altered. The mirror that we saw ourselves in because God had walked with mankind in the cool of the day. Man had a reality check all the time about who they were in God. But because of sin, God removed himself from man's presence. And man began to forget who he was and what he looked like. And that disfiguring was grotesque. Now, ultimately, the people of God lost their identity entirely and became slaves to the degree that even the children of God, the one that Jesus, God said belonged to Him, the children of God went into actual physical slavery. 
God was teaching them a lesson. And when he shows up on the scene, we see in the book of Deuteronomy, he realizes there's this need to give them a new identity. So God speaks to Moses. And if you've never looked at Deuteronomy chapter 4, do it today after service. But look at this word from God when he says to Moses, I want those people to know their new identity. Look with me at this. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own possession. And what God is telling them at this point is, you belong to me. I've got my imprint upon you. I own you. I have chosen you. And I brought you out of the iron furnace. Now, by anyone's standard of measure, at this period of time in history, Egypt is the world-dominant superpower, economically and militarily. They rule. They control everything. And so for these individuals who belong to God to be under the bondage of Egypt, as God says, in the iron furnace, that means that they're Shape has been altered. The white-hot kiln of Egypt has created molten metal and shaped and changed them. But God said, I'm pulling you out of that furnace. You don't belong to them anymore. Uh, When you've been in the furnace experience so long that you no longer even know who you are, once you're delivered out of it, you really do need an identity check. You need a reality check. And that's what Ephesians is for us. It's the New Testament version of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. God's saying who you are. So it challenges us to see our church as a community of people. I talked about this last week. Number one, as a group of people whose lives are a living witness to this privilege of having been identified and chosen by God. And we call that predestination. Number two, what we looked at last week He determined to deliver each one of us. That was God's intention. And he pulled us out of this iron furnace, and we call that redemption. God's brought us out, and this is what we're going to look at today. Number three, because we are now deeply imbued with the presence of God upon us, we've got his Holy Spirit, and his image is stamped upon us, and we're destined for eternity, we've got an inheritance. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you've got your Bible with you and you can turn to the book of Ephesians, go to verse 11. We left off in chapter 1 at verse 11 last week. We're going to make it all the way to the end of the chapter this morning. Let's start off with verse 11. It says, In Him, in Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him is mentioned four times up to this point. In Him is so significant because by some phenomenon that only God comprehends, every single one of us has been to the cross with Jesus. That's what we're told in Scripture. Jesus was crucified, buried, and raised for every believer, but He was also crucified, buried, and raised with every believer. Romans 6 says this. Look with me on the screen at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, have been baptized into his death? So we've got this relationship with Christ. When he went to the cross, we went to the cross. 
When he was buried in death, we were buried with him in death. So verse 4 says, therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. When it says in verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance, that's one single Greek word, ekolotheramon. Not that that really matters to you, but just one Greek word that represents an entire sentence. Here's why it should matter to you. This is what's important about it. When something future was so certain that it could not fail to happen, the ancient Greeks had a way of writing things in this phrase, echolotheramon, when they say, we have obtained, it's something that cannot fail to happen, spoken of as all it already occurred. So think of it this way, perhaps you're going on spring break coming up in a few weeks. Maybe you've made plans for spring break. If you've purchased plane tickets in advance for a trip, you've done that because you're so certain that trip can't fail to happen, you went ahead and made the purchase. That's the way this is being spoken of here. Even though we've not yet entered into heaven, it's written of as just as certain as though we're already in heaven. Let me encourage you to remember that. You move on through this year, 2013, remember what you already own. Most of you here familiar with William Randolph Hearst? I'm thinking maybe if you're over 40, you probably are, right? Okay, just a few. I see a few heads nodding, okay. All right, William Randolph Hearst, a a very wealthy publisher living in California, a newspaper guy, um, established the, the Hearst Empire. Maybe you've been to the Hearst Mansion if you've been in California. Uh, the marvel of the modern world, just to see what he constructed. So William Randolph Hearst was an avid art collector, and he loved to add to his collection to the degree that they actually built warehouses to put all his artwork into. Now, William Randolph Hearst is flipping through a magazine in the 1940s, and he comes across a piece of artwork that he just had to have. So much so that he actually called in one of his employees, an agent of his, and he said, I want you to literally scour the world. Go to all the museums that you can go to. Go to all the private collections that you can go to. Price is no object. I want this piece of artwork. So this guy set out to buy this for William Randolph Hearst, knowing that he had a blank checkbook to buy it with. He went to every museum he could go to, He went to every private collection he could go to for six months, and he could not locate it. Came back to California, reported to Mr. Hurst and to the individuals who oversaw his estate, "Um, I'm sorry, sir, it doesn't matter that you have a blank checkbook. I cannot find this piece of artwork for you. To which one of the individuals listening to that comment said, let me see that image. He looked at the image and he said, you can't buy it because you already own it, Mr. Hurst. It's in your warehouse. He had bought it years before. He owned it and he forgot it. There's the danger in heaven. That's the danger with this inheritance. We already possess this but we're prone to forget what is already ours. So verse 11 has this really logical flow to it. It says, we have this inheritance because he predestined us according to his purpose. So I am what I am because God chose to make me what I am. Not that I'm a robot. We do have free will. We already established that in week one, two weeks ago. He chose us before the foundation of the world, not because of my accomplishments, 
but because of his accomplishment at the cross and what he did for us. So verse 11, I want to break it down for you. Look with me on the screen because there's one word I really want you to see. Here's 11, it kind of broken down. According to his purpose, let's put that one up there on the screen because there you go. According to his purpose, God's power in brackets, that's not in the verse, but we're talking about God, works all things after the counsel of his will. This word works is energeo. It's a very important word. It, It means to energize it literally means to be mighty or powerful. So when we think of God, we think of energizing things, and his energy is essential because God brings everything that is necessary to make it happen. Here's a way to help you understand that. When a baby is born into the world, it's not necessary that someone give them mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Their heart is already pumping. God has already brought the energeo to that life. The energy is already there. It's born created. Created is born living. And so God does that with everything in his creation. That's why Paul wrote in Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Because God's already put everything in place. It can't not happen. It's his energy. So here's the first two verses kind of in a framework. God has redeemed us and restored the image that was mutilated by sin. So God's intention in creating man was to put his image on us, correct? We will make man in our likeness according to our image. That was God's intention in creation before sin so that we would bear his image. So that tells me that salvation's goal is also creation's goal. The same goal that God had at the beginning is the same goal that Jesus brought forth, which was to restore us to God, to put us back in his image again. Go with me to verse 13. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. There's this tension in Scripture. It's like a tightly wound rubber band. And the tension is there because of us. Because we know God's sovereign, and He knows all things, and He wills all things, but yet we're told we have free will. And so because we're incapable of fully reconciling those two things, it's like this rubber band is stretched really, really tight. God's sovereignty versus man's will. And we're the ones that put the word verses in there. For God, it's not necessary. The two work together. Because look at how simple this is. In him, you also, after listening to the message. Now Paul had just said, we're predestined. We're chosen. But yet here in the same breath, he says, You, after listening to the message of truth, you believed. That's how simple salvation is. There's no system of works. It's not by works of righteousness. It's because of God's grace. So that's why we're told in Romans 10.10, there's only one way to come to him. Look with me this on, on the screen. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So here's what's really clear. Faith is my reaction to God's elective purposes. God's 
put election in place, his predestination. Faith is my reaction to God's action towards me. You've heard me say this a hundred times if you heard me say it once, if you've been here very long. This is, this is the way I would say it. What you believe about God determines what you do next. And if that's new to you, perhaps you're new to the church and you haven't heard that phrase before, what you believe about God determines what you do next, you may need just a minute to process that. Here it is. When you come to believe, and in the deepest part of who you are, what God has said about your identity and about who you are through Jesus Christ to the point that you know, that you know, that you know it, and it can't possibly be shaken, you're going to take that truth and you're going to jump on its back and saddle it and you're going to ride it right into eternity. Nothing can shake that because you come to the point where you believe. So my reaction to God's action is faith. What I believe about God, who He says I am, determines what I'm going to do next. Now, faith is a gift. That's, that's true. Faith is a gift from God, but it requires our response. Now, let's finish up verse 13 because we've got this guarantee that Paul spoke about, and the guarantee is the seal of the Holy Spirit. He says, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit. We've got this pledge. I know most men that I know like assurances. We like guarantee systems. My wife is not so much that way. Um, my wife it really is very good about taking people at their word. I tend to be more like a guy, because I am one, and, and I tend to need assurances. And, and mankind needs those. If, if you believe not, just go to Best Buy and buy an iPad. The first thing the cashier will ask you at the counter when they scan it is, would you like to buy the extended warranty program with that? Why? Because they know humankind. We have the nature to want guarantees. That's why they try and sell them to us. So we need these warranties because how can I know? Now, God's Word is sufficient, but it's His nature to meet my need. And my need is to have guarantees. So He makes a promise to us. He gives His own guarantee. So He uses this word sealed, and it has a really great meaning to it. The word sealed that's used here that's associated with the Holy Spirit means there's this indication of authority, authenticity, and security. It's a validation of ownership. Now, this is how it's used in the Bible and in ancient times. Every ruler of a land, every king of an empire had a ring that they wore on their finger. It was called the signet ring, S-I-G-N-E-T. And the signet ring had an image engraved into the ring. And so when a king would issue an edict, it would be written down by the scribes, it would be sealed up, and hot wax put over the top of it, and the king, the king alone, unless he gave his authority to someone else, would take his signet ring and dip it into the wax. That way, everyone would know that it was backed up with the king's authority. We see a real-world example of that when we hear about Alexander the Great because Alexander the Great, as he was pushing eastward, expanding his empire towards India, decided that he would send an emissary down to Egypt to meet with Pharaoh. And the king of Egypt had been acting in hostile fashion towards Alexander the Great's interest. So he sent one man with his signet ring down to see the king of Egypt. Now, Alexander the Great is busy with his empire. He can't leave. So he sends an emissary without any soldiers, without any weapons, 
Just one guy. Now the king of Egypt heard that he was coming. So the king of Egypt marshals his entire military force and comes forward to meet the emissary. And when the emissary shows up in front of the king, he says just five words. He holds the the ring up, the signet ring, and he said, Alexander the Great says this to you. Cease your hostilities against Alexander's interest. Now, mind you, he's got an entire army behind him. He's the Pharaoh. And he's got one guy holding a ring out in the desert in front of him. But he knew what that ring represented. But he didn't want to lose face in front of his military might. And so his response to the emissary was this. You can relay to Alexander the Great that I will ponder his request. To which the emissary did this. He got before the king and he drew a circle in the sand all the way around him completely. And he said to him, do not leave the circle until you have given me your response. (laughs) How long do you think he had to stand there? You know, he's being embarrassed in front of his men. But he knows what's waiting on the other side if he dared defy the edict of Alexander the Great. So his response was this. Tell Alexander he has his request. And he stepped out of the circle. In a much, much enormously greater way, the Holy Spirit has put God's seal on you. And it says, you belong to me. I own you. That one, that one there is mine. I bought him with the blood of Jesus Christ. No one can touch him. No one can take him away. He marks us as God's own possession. So from the moment that you confess Jesus as your Savior, from that very instant, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit and eternally you belong to God. Now, I put it in your notes this morning if you grabbed one of the bulletins when you came in. There's three other reasons to pay attention to that. We're not going to get into it this morning, but they have to do with security and ownership and the sign of authenticity. You can read about it later. It's on the right-hand side of your notes. But here's what's clear. We are God's possession, and His seal verifies it. And so He's given us a pledge. Well, this word pledge that's used here, it says we are given a pledge of our inheritance. It actually has to do with an engagement ring. It's the word Araban, and it's, it, it's the word that's used when a man gave a ring to a woman saying, I pledge, I'm committed to this person, and I'm giving a ring to represent it. That's the pledge of our inheritance that we're given here. Let's move on to verse 15. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Just very quickly, Paul has not seen them in four years. I told you two weeks ago, he, he served, he was their pastor, he went back to Jerusalem, he got arrested, He's hauled off to Rome, and now he writes this while he's in chains, and he hasn't seen them for four years, but he hears reports. People are so excited about what's going on in Ephesus. They're coming to Rome, and as they come through Rome, they find Paul, and they say, Paul, you've got to hear about this church. 
these things that are taking place among these people. And Paul says, I've heard about it. This faith that you have in the Lord Jesus. So he hears two things. You have faith in Christ and you have a love for other Christians. Those are the two things that really mark believers. Something that really exudes from you, your faith in Christ, and the fact that you love other Christians. Those are the things Paul comments on. And he says, as a result, I believe that your faith is real. So I'm going to pray for you. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Now he talks about the eyes of their heart being opened, and immediately we think, oh, that is so cool. That could be like a that could be like a Christian worship song. Eyes, the heart being opened? Well, yeah, in 2013, we might think that way because we think emotion when we think of our heart. 2013 culture says, well, our heart is the seat of our feelings. That's not the case in the ancient world. As a matter of fact, when they thought of emotion and feelings, they thought of their stomach. My favorite Greek word in the entire Greek language is splagnizomahi. It sounds like spaghetti dish, right? Like an Italian dish. Splagnizomahi is talking about compassion. So think of it this way. When, when Jesus was in a city and he saw a woman coming out, a mom, and she's walking alongside her son's casket. He had just died unexpectedly. And Jesus sees her grieving and weeping. Scripture says this, Jesus looked upon her and was filled with splagnizomahi, compassion, meaning his gut ached. See, for them, that was the seat of emotion. But the heart, cardio, that was the seat of intellect, wisdom. So Paul is saying, I want your wisdom to be opened up, your knowledge, your understanding. Why is that so significant? Now remember, Paul has been their pastor for three years. Apollos has been their pastor. Timothy has been their pastor. And yet Paul is saying, I want all that knowledge that you have in your heart to be opened up. In other words, this, grasp the significance. Put the pieces together of all the knowledge that you have along with the promise of God. It's really comprehensive. Look with me on the screen. I want God to give you an understanding that you would, one, know what is the hope of his calling. Two, that you would know the riches of the glory of his inheritance. Three, the surpassing greatness of his power. So he's praying that God would enlighten them about predestination, about redemption, and about their inheritance. That's what he's praying for. His supreme desire is this. Church in Ephesus, new hope. You are no afterthought of God. He predetermined before you were ever born, before you are what you are today, that you would belong to him. And your responsibility was to believe and to hear that and listen. And after receiving it, to know that you were sealed and that can't change. That's who you are in God. That's the promise of Scripture. Until we comprehend who we truly are in Jesus, 
and I know a lot of people are really suffering with this. Many Christians suffer with what I'm about to say. Until we comprehend who we truly are in Jesus, it is impossible to live a fulfilling life. But when we know who we really are, we can live like who we really are. That makes us bold. And I suspect, just Mark rambling, I suspect what you're hearing is the key issue for why you don't see more believers in Jesus, young and old, being bold about their faith. Because they've forgotten their identity. And they've forgotten they have a story to tell. And it's the greatest story in all the world that God chose before the foundation of the world. Get that down. You want to live a fearless life no matter the circumstances, no matter if your wife dies and goes to the bottom of the ocean with your daughters. You want to be able to say, it's well with my soul. You get this down. Understand that your life is anchored in eternity. The truth is so magnificent for words, that's why Paul's praying about it, because it requires God's revelation for us to understand this. Let's wrap it up here with verse 19 ending and into 20. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Do you notice that he is not praying for power to be given to believers? How can we have more than what we already have? He's praying that they would gain awareness of the power that they possess. So I'm here to tell you this morning you don't have to pray for power to go out and talk about Jesus. You don't have to pray for power to do God's will. You have to pray for boldness to accomplish what God has already given you. That's why this is written in Ephesians 3.20. We're going to look at this in a couple of weeks. It says this, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. That power is already there. We just need to be bold about taking it. Uh, Paul is asking the Holy Spirit to do for the Ephesians exactly what we also need. Here it is, 12.01, we'll call that afternoon, okay? One minute past noon, 2013, January 20th. And we need the exact same thing that the first century believers needed. To understand a deep, understanding of this truth that our Lord Jesus is above all rule. He's above all authority, all power, all dominion, and every name that is named. Here's your last Greek words for this morning. I know you were really waiting for them, right? Anxious. Come on, give me some more, Mark. Okay, I'm going to put all four of them together because I want you to see what Paul wrote. Rule is arche, which means the leader, the first one. Authority is exousia. Power is dunamis. Dominion is kyrios or kyrotes, lordship. Why did he put those all together like this? This is so cool. These terms are the ancient terms used for the rank of angelic beings. 
Now understand, Paul is building a case towards chapter six when he talks about spiritual warfare. We argue not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in high places, which our Lord is over all. So, kirotes, dunamis, arche, dominion, lucifer, fallen angels. Our Lord is above, far above all of these things. Here's the point. The power of Christ in your life cannot be overthrown. He's far above all of these ones who tried to defeat Him at one time. That's why Paul is writing this truth down for this church. Don't miss it. Your God who redeemed you from the white hot furnace, He loves you so much, He has seated you with Him in the heavenlies, placing you far above because we are one with Christ. So that's why he ends it here in verse 22 this way. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So if he's over all dominion, all world authority, Syria, Turkey, the United States, China, if he's over Satan, he's also over all of your emotional problems, your relationship problems, your psychological problems, your financial problems. Everything shrinks in his presence. And God put all things in subjection under his feet. How cool is that? The one who says, I love you and I gave my life for you and everything is under my authority. So who should you be going to when you've got those issues in your life? You see why Paul really wanted them to get this down. Here's where I end this morning. I want you to remember that your inheritance is secure. No one can ever take it from you. Look with me on the screen at 1 Peter 1. You have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Your inheritance is secure, New Hope. How does that make you feel to know who you really are? Regardless of all those other voices who have told you differently. God has said who you really are. And when we see ourselves as God sees us, we know that we have infinite worth. Now, when you've been in the furnace a long time, many of us have before we met Christ, so long that you no longer even know who you are, you totally forget who you are. When you're delivered out of it, it really seems too good to be true that you can have this new identity. And many people respond this way. I want to believe this. I, re I really do. But I struggle. Because I don't feel like I have infinite worth. Mark, if you knew the things that I've gone through, the things that have happened to me, I may have had infinite worth maybe when I was a child, but if you knew the things I've done, 
or the things that have been done to me. You know, that's why Paul is praying for the eyes of the heart to be opened because in our emotion, we're prone to not believe that. He's saying, take the information that you have. Open yourself up to this truth. Not even Paul could lay hold of this. So he's saying, God, we need your spirit to make this known to us. That's what I encourage you to do this week. When you leave here, perhaps, or before you leave here, stay in your seat for a moment and linger and pray that God would begin to reveal to you who you really are. And then nothing can hold you back because you'll go forward in boldness. The, the truth of this is a magnitude beyond our ability to understand. But here's what I know on the authority of God's word. One day, I'm going to stand with you before Christ, and I'm going to see you as you really are. And you're going to see me as I really am. We will be known as he is known because we're going to see him face to face. And Scripture tells us that we will, as a result of that, we will begin worshiping. And even those of you who don't like to raise your hands in worship will probably raise your hands in worship. Or you may even fall on your face. And we'll begin singing an endless hallelujah. I'm going to pray with you right now. I'm going to pray for you and with you that you would begin to see yourself in this identity that God has given you. Let's pray together, church. Father, I I sit in a room full of those who are the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. And we were created in your image. And we recognize that we've lived in sin, but because of what Jesus did for us, we have been taken from that life and pulled out of that iron-hot furnace. So Father, we're before you today as the true sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve who have the image of the Creator stamped upon us. Those of us who are in relationship with you because of what Jesus did can sing an endless hallelujah before you, Father. God, I look forward to the day when I see these individuals and when they see me and we see each other face to face with all those who have gone before us. And we sing together in this endless chorus of praise. Worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. Worthy to receive praise and glory and honor and thanks and dominion and power and rule. Thank you, God, for that one whom we know to be our King. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.